Uh, hello, good morning, good afternoon, or uh, good evening, depending on uh, where you are in the world. Thank you for joining me once again here at the Invisible London podcast. Um, it's been a good few weeks since we last recorded. Uh, and so, just to catch you up, we are still um, going through the book The Great God Pan by Arthur Macken, uh, a short story, um, which uh, is, I think, in seven parts, but I'm combining uh, uh, another couple of them today. And uh, it deals with a, I think it's Victorian London, it could be Edwardian, but um, uh, some mysterious deaths um, and uh, murders perhaps relating to the occult in London. Uh, anyway, so where were we? Um, in part one, uh, we, uh, which is called The Experiment, we met uh, Dr. Raymond and his friend, Mr. Clark. And Dr. Raymond was busy experimenting on a young girl who had, um, uh, he, he had, uh, I think, found as an orphan and raised as his own child. And he was busy uh, unlocking the secrets of the human brain uh, and hopefully wanting to draw back the veil between uh, the hidden occult magical world of angels and demons uh, and uh, see if we could um, uh, unlock the great power of the human mind so we could see that, uh, that magical world that surrounds us. Um, in part two, uh, which is called Clark's Memoirs. Uh, Mr. Clark um, is uh, uh, it's about 20 years later after he witnessed the experiment on, on young Mary, who unfortunately died. Um, and uh, he now collects stories of the infernal in his sort of uh, uh, memoirs of Satan, I think he calls it. Um, and uh, in that chapter, he tells us about uh, a young girl called Helen V, who's an orphan, um, who uh, plays in the woods and uh, she gets mixed up in the tragic deaths of uh, a young playmate, Rachel, and a little boy called Trevor, who's driven mad. Uh, and then in the uh, third part, which is called The City of Resurrections, uh, we meet a new character called Mr. Villiers, who's a, uh, a well-to-do man about town, who runs into an old school friend of his called Herbert, who's become homeless after his uh, marriage to uh, a strange lady, uh, which leads to, his, uh, leads to his downfall. He and uh, Mr. Herbert gets mixed up in um, uh, some strange deaths as well. So there's um, a bit of a, a through line here and that um, uh, Clark, uh, Mr. Villiers are now sort of getting mixed up in some uh, pretty unusual events. And so here we are in part four of the great god Pan, uh, which is called The Discovery in Paul Street. A few months after Villiers' meeting with Herbert, Mr. Clark was sitting as usual by his after-dinner hearth, resolutely guarding his fancies from wandering in the direction of his bureau. For more than a week he had succeeded in keeping away from his memoirs and his cherished hopes of a complete self-reformation. But, in spite of his endeavours, he could not hush the wonder and the strange curiosity that the last case he had written down had excited within him. He had put the case, or rather the outline of it, conjecturally into a scientific friend who shook his head and thought Clark was getting rather queer. And on this particular evening, Clark was making an effort to rationalise the story when a sudden knock at the door roused him from his meditations. It's Mr Villiers to see you, sir. 
Oh dear me, Villiers, it's very kind of you to look me up. I've not seen you for many months. I should think nearly a year. Come in, come in. How are you, Villiers? You want any advice about investments? Oh, no thanks. I fancy everything I have in that way is pretty safe. No, Clark. I've come, really, to consult you about a rather curious matter that has been brought under my notice of late. I'm afraid you think it all rather absurd when I tell my tale. I sometimes think so myself, and that's what made up my mind to come to you, as I know you're a practical man. Mr. Villiers was ignorant of the memoirs to prove the existence of the devil. Oh, well, Villiers, I shall be happy to give you my advice to the best of my ability. What is the nature of this case? Well, it's an extraordinary thing altogether. You know my ways. I always keep my eyes open in the streets, and in my time I have chanced about some pretty queer customers, and queer cases too, but this, I think, beats all. I was coming out of a restaurant one nasty winter night about three months ago. I had a capital dinner and a good bottle of Chianti, and I stood for a moment on the pavement, thinking what a mystery there is about London streets and the companies that pass along them. I think a bottle of red wine encourages these fancies, Clark, and I dare say I should have thought a page of small type, but I was cut short by a beggar who'd come behind me and was making the usual appeals. Of course, I looked around, and this beggar turned out to be what was left of a dear old friend of mine, a man named Herbert. I asked him how he'd come to such a wretched pass, and he told me. We walked up and down one of those long, dark Soho streets, and there I listened to his story. He said he had married a beautiful girl, some years younger than himself, and, as he put it, she had corrupted him body and soul. He wouldn't go into details, he said he dare not, but what he had seen and heard haunted him by night and by day, and when I looked into his face, I knew he was speaking the truth. There was something about the man that made me shiver. I, I don't know why, but it was there. Anyway, I... Uh, I gave him a little money and sent him away, and I assure you that when he was gone I gasped for breath. His presence seemed to chill one's blood. Oh, isn't this all just a little fanciful, Villiers? I suppose the poor fellow had made an impudent marriage, and in plain English, gone to the bad. Well, listen to this, Villiers told Clark, the story he had heard from Austin. Well, you see, he concluded, there can be little doubt that this Mr. Blank, whoever he was, died of sheer terror. He saw something so awful, so terrible, that it cut his life short. And what he saw, he most certainly saw in that house, which, somehow or other, he got a bad name in the neighbourhood. I had the curiosity to go and look at the place for myself. It's a saddening kind of street. The houses are old enough to be mean and dreary, but not old enough to be quaint. As far as I could see, most of them are let in lodgings, furnished and unfurnished, and almost every door has three bells to it. Here and there the ground floors have been made into shops of the commonest kind. Oh, it's a dismal street in every way. I found number 20 was to let, and I went to the agents and got the key. Of course I should have heard nothing of the Herberts in that quarter, but I asked the man, fair and square, how long they had left the house and whether there had been other tenants in the meanwhile. He looked at me queerly for a minute and told me the Herberts had left immediately after the unpleasantness, as he called it, and since then the house had been empty. Mr Villiers paused for a minute. I've always been rather fond of going over empty houses. There's a sort of fascination about the desolate empty rooms, with the nails sticking in the walls and the thick dust upon the window sills. But I didn't enjoy going over number 20, Paul Street. I'd hardly put myself inside the passage when I noticed a queer, heavy feeling about the air of the house. 
Of course, all empty houses are stuffy and so forth, but this was something quite different. I can't describe it to you, but it seemed to stop the breath. I went into the front room and the back room and the kitchens, and they were all dirty and dusty enough as you would expect, but there was something strange about them all. I couldn't define it to you, I, I only know it felt queer. It was one of the rooms on the first floor, though, that was the worst. It was a largish room, and once upon a time a paper must have been cheerful enough, but when I saw it, paint, paper and everything were most doleful. But the room was full of horror. I felt my teeth grinding as I put my hand on the door, and when I went in, I thought I should have fallen fainting. However, I pulled myself together and stood against the end wall, wondering what on earth there could be about the room to make my limbs tremble, and my heart beat as if it was the hour of death. In one corner there was a pile of newspapers littering the floor, and I began looking at them. They were papers of three or four years ago, some of them half torn and some crumpled as if they'd been used for packing. I turned the whole pile over, and amongst them I found a curious drawing. I'll show it to you presently. But I, I couldn't stay in that room. I felt it was overpowering me. I was thankful to come out, safe and sound, into the open air. People stared at me as I walked along the street, and one man thought I was drunk. I was staggering about from one side of the pavement to the other, and it was much as I could do to take the key back to the agent and get home. God, I think I was in bed for a week, suffering from what my doctor called nervous shock and exhaustion. One of those days, I was reading the evening paper and happened to notice a paragraph headed, Starved to Death. It was the usual style of a thing, a model lodging house in Marylebone, a door locked for several days and a dead man in his chair when they broke in. The deceased, said the paragraph, was known as Charles Herbert, and it is believed to have been once a prosperous country gentleman. His name was familiar to the public three years ago in connection with the mysterious death in Paul Street, Tottenham Court Road, the deceased being a, uh, a tenant of house number 20, in the area of which a gentleman of good position was found dead under circumstances not devoid of suspicion. God, it's a tragic ending, isn't it? But after all, what if he told me were true, which I'm sure it was, and that the man's life was all the tragedy, and a tragedy of a stranger sort than they put on the boards? Oh, and... That's the story, is it? said Clark musingly. Yes, that's the story. Well, really, Villiers, I scarcely know what to say about it. There are, no doubt, circumstances in the case which seem peculiar. The finding of a dead man in the area of Herbert's house, for instance, and the extraordinary opinion of the physician as to the cause of death. But after all, it's conceivable that the facts may be explained in a straightforward manner. As to your own sensations, when you went to see the house, well, I'd suggest they're probably down to a vivid imagination. You must have been brooding in a semi-conscious way over all that you heard. I don't exactly see what more can be said or done in the matter, but you evidently think there is a mystery of some kind, but Herbert is dead. Then where do you propose to look? Well, I propose to look for the woman, the woman he married. She is the mystery. The two men sat silent by the fireside. Clark secretly congratulating himself on having successfully kept up the character of advocate of the commonplace, and Villiers wrapped in his gloomy fancies. Oh, I think I'll have a cigarette, he said at last, and put his hand in his pocket to feel for the cigarette case. Ah, he said, starting lightly, I forgot I had something to show you. You remember me saying that I'd found a rather curious sketch among the pile of old newspapers in the house in Paul Street. Well, here it is. Villiers drew out a small, thin parcel from his pocket. It was covered with brown paper and skewered with string, and the knots were troublesome. 
In spite of himself, Clark felt inquisitive, and he bent forward on his chair as Villiers painfully undid the string and unfolded the outer covering. Inside was a second wrapping of tissue, and Villiers took it off and handed the small piece of paper to Clark without a word. There was dead silence in the room for five minutes or more, as the two men sat so still that they could hear the ticking of the old, uh, tall, old-fashioned clock that stood outside in the hall, and in the mind of one of them, the slow monotony of the sound woke up a far, far memory. He was looking intently at the small pen and ink sketch of the woman's head. It had evidently been drawn with great care by a true artist, for the woman's soul looked out of those eyes, and the lips were parted with a strange smile. Clark gazed still at the face. It brought to his memory one summer evening long ago, when he saw the long, lovely valley, the river, the river winding between the hills, the meadows and the cornfields, the dull red sun and the cold white mist rising from the water. He heard a voice speaking to him across the waves of many years, and saying, Clark, Mary will see the great god Pan. And then he was standing in the grim room beside the doctor, listening to the heavy ticking of the clock waiting and watching, watching the figure lying on the green chair beneath the lamplight. Mary rose up, and he looked into her eyes, and his heart grew cold within him. Who is this woman? he said at last. His voice was dry and hoarse. This is the woman who Herbert married. Clark looked again at the sketch. It was not Mary, after all, but there was certainly Mary's face, but there was something else, something he had not seen in Mary's features. When the white-clad girl entered the laboratory with the doctor, nor at her terrible awakening, nor when she lay grinning on the bed. Whatever it was, the glance that came from those eyes, the smile on the full lips, or the whole expression of her face. Clark shuddered before it at his inmost soul, and thought unconsciously of Dr. Phillips' words the most vivid presentiment of evil I have ever seen. He turned the paper over mechanically in his hand and glanced at the back. Good God, Clark, what's the matter? You're as white as death. Villiers had started wildly from his chair as Clark fell back with a groan and let the paper drop from his hands. I don't feel very well, Villiers. I'm subject to these attacks. Oh, pour me a little wine, thank you. Oh, that will do. I shall feel better in a few minutes. Villiers... Villiers picked up the fallen sketch and turned it over as Clark had done. You saw that, he said. That's how I identified it as being a portrait of Herbert's wife, or I should say his widow. How do you feel now? Oh, better, thanks. It was a passing faintness. But I, I don't think I quite catch your meaning. What did you say enabled you to identify the picture? Well, it's, it's this word, Helen, was written on the back. Didn't I tell you her name was Helen? Yes, Helen Vaughan. Clark groaned. There could be no shadow of a doubt. Now, don't you agree with me, said Villiers, that in the story I've told you tonight, that in part this woman plays in it, there are some very strange points? Ah, yes, Villiers, Clark muttered. It's a strange story indeed. A strange story. But you must give me time to think it over. I may be able to help you, or, or I may not. Must you be going now? Well... Good night, Villiers. Good night. Come and see me in the course of a week. Part 5. The Letter of Advice Do you know Austin? said Villiers, as the two friends were pacing sedately along Piccadilly one pleasant morning in May. 
Do you know that I'm convinced about what you told me about Paul Street and the Herberts is a mere episode in extraordinary history? I may as well confess to you that when I asked you about Herbert a few months ago that I'd just seen him. Oh, you'd seen him? Where? Oh, he begged of me in the street one night. He was in the most pitiable plight, but I recognised the man and I got him to tell me his history, or at least the outline of it. In brief, it amounted to this. He had been ruined by his wife. Hmm? In what manner? Well, he wouldn't tell me. He would only say that she had destroyed him, body and soul. Oh, the man's dead now. And what has become of his wife? Oh, that's what I would like to know. I mean to find her sooner or later. I know a man named Clark, a dry fellow. In fact, a man of business, but shrewd enough. You understand my meaning. Not shrewd in the mere business sense of the word, but a man who really knows something about men and life. Well, I laid the case before him, and he was evidently impressed. He said it needed consideration, and he asked me to come again in the course of a week. A few days later, I received this extraordinary letter. Austin took the envelope, drew out the letter, and read it curiously. It ran as follows. My dear Villiers, I have thought over the matter on which you consulted me the other night, and my advice to you is this. Throw the portrait into the fire, blot out the story from your mind, and never give it another thought, Villiers, or you will be sorry. You will think, no doubt, that I am in possession of some secret information. And to a certain extent, that is the case. But I only know a little. I am like a traveller who has peered over an abyss and has drawn back in terror. What I know is strange enough and horrible enough, but beyond my knowledge there are depths and horrors more frightful still, more incredible than any tale told of winter nights about the fire. I have resolved, and nothing shall shake that resolve, to explore no whit further, and if you value your happiness, you will make the same determination. Come and see me by all means, but we will talk on more cheerful topics than this. Austin folded the letter methodically and returned it to Villiers. Well, it's certainly an extraordinary letter, but what does he mean by the portrait? Ah, oh, I forgot to tell you. I'd been to Paul Street and made a discovery. Villiers told his story as he had told it to Clark, and Austin listened in silence. He seemed puzzled. How very curious that you should experience such an unpleasant sensation in that room, he said at length. I hardly gather that it was a mere matter of the imagination, a feeling of repulsion, in short. No, it was more physical than mental, as if I were inhaling at every breath some deadly fume which seemed to penetrate every nerve and bone and sinew of my body. I felt racked from head to foot. My eyes began to grow dim. It was like the, the entrance of death. Yes, 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 certainly strange. Hmm. You see, your friend confesses there is some very black story connected to this woman. Did you notice any peculiar emotion in him when you were telling your tale? Well, yes, I did. He became very faint, uh, faint, but he assured me that it was a mere passing attack to which he was subject. And did you believe him? Well, I did at the time, but I don't now. I heard what he had to say with a good deal of indifference till I showed him the portrait. It was then that he was seized with the attack of which I spoke. He looked ghastly, I assure you. Well then, you must have seen the woman before. But there might be another explanation. It might have been the name and not the face, which was familiar to him. What do you think? Oh, well, I couldn't say. To the best of my belief, he was, it was after turning the portrait in his hands that he nearly dropped from the chair. The name, as he knows, written on the back. Yes, quite so. After all, it's impossible to come to any resolution in a case like this. Oh, I hate melodrama, and nothing strikes me as more commonplace and tedious than the ordinary ghost story of commerce. But... Really, Villiers, it looks as if there was something very queer at the bottom of all this. 
the two men had, without noticing it, turned up Ashley Street even northward from Piccadilly. It was a long street and rather a gloomy one, but here and there a brighter taste had illuminated the front houses with flowers and gay curtains and a cheerful paint on the door. Ilias glanced up as Austin stopped speaking and looked into one of those houses. Geraniums red and white drooped from every sill and daffodil-coloured curtains were draped back from each window. Well, that looks cheerful, doesn't it? he said. Yes, and inside is still more cheery. One of the pleasantest houses of the season, so I've heard. I haven't been there myself, but I've met several men who have, and they tell me it's uncommonly jovial. Oh, whose house is it? It's a uh, Mrs Beaumont. And who's she? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I've heard she comes from South America, but after all, who she is is of little consequence. She is a very wealthy woman, there's no doubt of that, and some of the best people have taken her up. I hear she has some wonderful claret, really marvellous wine, which must have cost a fabulous sum. Lord Argentine was telling me all about it. He was here last Sunday evening. He assures me he has never tasted such a wine, and Argentine, as you know, is an expert. By the way, that reminds me, she must be an oddish sort of woman, this Miss Beaumont. Argentine asked her how old the wine was, and what do you think she said? About a thousand years, I believe. Lord Argentine thought she was chafing him, you know, but when he laughed, she said she was speaking quite seriously and offered to show him the jar. Of course, he couldn't say anything more after that, but it seems rather antiquated for a beverage, doesn't it? Why, here we are at my rooms. Won't you come in? Oh, thanks. I think I will. I haven't seen the curiosity shop for a while. The room furnished richly, yet oddly, where every jar and bookcase and table and every rug and jar and ornament seemed to be a thing apart, preserved each with its own individuality. Anything fresh lately? said Phileas after a while. No, I, I think not. You saw those queer jugs, didn't you? Yeah, I thought so. I don't think I've come across anything for the last few weeks. Austin glanced around the room from cupboard to cupboard, from shelf to shelf, in search of some new oddity. His eyes fell at last on an odd chest, pleasantly and quaintly carved, which stood in a dark corner of the room. Ah, he said, I was forgetting. I have got something to show you. Austin unlocked the chest, drew out a thick quarto volume, laid it on the table and resumed the cigar he had put down. Do you know Arthur Mayrick, the painter, Villiers? Oh, a little. I met him two or three times at the house of a friend of mine. What's become of him? I haven't heard his name mentioned for some time. You wouldn't have done. He's dead. Oh, you don't say so. Quite young, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Only thirty when he died. What did he die of? Uh, I don't know. He was an intimate friend of mine and a thoroughly good fellow. He used to come here and talk to me for hours, and he was one of the best talkers I've ever met. He could even talk about painting, and that's more than can be said of most painters. About 18 months ago, he was feeling rather overworked, and partly at my suggestion, he went off on a sort of roving expedition, with no very definite end or aim about him. I believe New York must be his first port, but I've never heard from him. Three months ago, I got this book, with a very civil letter from an English doctor practising in Buenos Aires, stating that he had attended the late Mr. Mayrick during his illness, and that the deceased had expressed an, an earnest wish that the enclosed packet should be sent to me after his death. That was all. And you haven't written for further particulars? Well, I have been thinking of doing so. You would advise me to write to the doctor? Oh, certainly. And what about the book? Well, it was sealed up when I got it. I don't think the doctor had even seen it. Is it something very rare? Mayrick was a collector, perhaps. 
No, I think not. Hardly a collector. Now, what do you think of these ANU jugs? Well, they're very peculiar, but I like them. Aren't you going to show me poor Meyrick's legacy? Ah, yes, yes, to be sure. Well, the fact is, it's a rather peculiar sort of thing, and I haven't shown it to anyone. I wouldn't say anything about it if I were you. Anyway, there it is. Villiers took the book and opened it at haphazard. It isn't a printed volume, then, he said. No, it's a collection of drawings in black and white by my, four, uh, my poor friend Meyrick. Villiers turned to the first page. It was blank. The second bore a brief inscription. On the third page was a design which made Villiers start and look up at Austin. He was gazing abstractly out of the window. Villiers turned page after page, absorbed, in spite of himself, in the frightful Walpurgis night of evil, strange, monstrous evil that the dead artist had set forth in black and white. The figures of fauns and satyrs danced before his eyes, the darkness of the thicket, the dance on a mountain top, the scenes by lonely shores and green vineyards by rocks and deserted places passed before him, a world which before the human soul seemed to shrink back and shudder. Villiers whirled over the remaining pages. He had seen enough, but the picture on the last leaf caught his eye as he almost closed the book. Austin! Well, what is it? Do you know who that is? It was a woman's face, alone on a white page. No, it is. No, of course not. Well, I do. Who is it? It's Miss Herbert. Are you sure? I'm perfectly sure of it. Poor Meyrick. He's one more chapter in her story. But what do you think of the designs? They're frightful. Lock the book up again, Austin. If I were you, I would burn it. It must be a terrible companion, even though it's in her chest. Oh, yes, they are singular drawings. But I wonder what connection there could be between Meyrick and Mrs Herbert. Or what link between her and these designs. Ah, who can say? It is possible that the matter may end here, and we shall never know. But in my own opinion, this Helen Vaughan, or Mrs Herbert, is only the beginning. She will come back to London, Austin. Depend on it. She will come back, and we shall hear more about her. And I doubt it will be very pleasant news. So, there we are. The plot is thickening indeed. So... Mrs. Helen Vaughan, who has seen the death of at least one husband now and some uh, mysterious other deaths all linked to her, has now become... Uh, it's Mrs. Herbert. No. Yes. Who is she? Wait. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, Helen Vaughan became Mrs. Herbert. And, uh, and there she is in this book by an artist in South America. So what's going on here? Oh, my goodness me. My brain's swimming just thinking about it. So there we are. Um, and so uh, we've got left, uh, there's two other parts, I think, to the story, if not three, uh, which are all slightly shorter than the last two chapters. We've done two here again today. Uh, and so what I will do is uh, we'll save those up for the next episode uh, and we'll bring this whole strange, mysterious case uh, of the great god Pan to a close. Um, so, what else can we talk about? Um, I've uh, previously talked about uh, Arthur Matton and uh, how he spent his time in London 
um, where he would uh, he was too poor to do anything else, and so he would go out walking more often than not because it was warmer outside than it was in his own dreadful crap house. Uh, and he would stroll around London um, without a, a, a destination in mind, um, and that sort of um, uh, travelling uh, across the city plays a part in um, a few of the chapters that we've read um, and some of the other characters talk about it and as Villiers says himself he often uh, comes out of his club after drinking a little bit too much and spends his time looking across the city um, and thinking about the people who live there and going on little sort of curious adventures as um, the, the Victorian upper classes would probably had the time and the money to do um, but this is a really uh, interesting little concept in that uh, today it's now known as um, psychogeography and it's a, um, uh, it was a concept that was th thought up and actually given a name after the Second World War, I think in 1955, um, a guy called Guy um, Derbord, which I've probably like, once again butchered uh, the pronunciation of his name. Um, but he described it as the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographical environment, consciously organised or not, on the emotions and behaviour of individuals. And um, I think the idea being it here is how um, the humans have subconsciously organised uh, the world uh, that we live in, whether that is in a, um, the layout of a room or a house or a building or an office or a hospital or a school uh, or a town or a city or a village um, in how um, the uh, human mind is affected by travelling through and reacting to the architecture and the design of the world around us. And more often than not this is a completely unconscious um, part of our brains in that we get up in the morning and we get ready at home and we walk through the house and pick up our bits and pieces that we need for the day, we go out and whether that's we drive somewhere or get the train or the bus or the bike and uh, you end up in either your school or your work, you spend the day there, you come back home again, you fall asleep and then it all starts over again and um, the, the, the destination is always you know the key part of the journey. Um, it's uh, not until you might have a uh, a long holiday or a gap year and then you think right well I'll travel around you know India or uh, South America or wherever it may be and um, uh, in that instance you know your brain shifts and your um, your travel is the destination and you might not have any you know inclination of where you're going to be ending up but you just know you're going to be um, traveling there and then you begin to see the world in a different way and I think actually it's quite interesting that um, you know people say right I'm going to go and find myself on, on this gap year or whatever age it is obviously in the UK, it's often before you go to university or just after. Um, but obviously people do it at all sorts of different times in their life. When they get a bit older and have a bit more money, they can go and do these things more. Um, but it's often, you know, they say, I'm going to go and find myself, um, which I think is interesting because it's, um, it's that time in your life when you think, actually, I'll start to think about what I'm doing and think about myself. And that can only happen when you don't have a destination in mind. Um, and this concept of looking at the world around you and seeing um, how it can affect your uh, thoughts and feelings and emotions um, is something that we never really sit and take the time to do. And so in the 1950s, I think, um, oh God, if you look at the um, Wikipedia page on uh, psychogeography, it's one of the most oh densely written, maddening articles just because I just 
God, I've been I've read it time and time again, and I just I don't understand what the hell it's saying. <laughs> and it's a concept which is so closely linked to I think an awful lot of um, uh, more left wing political ideas as well. Um, in it, um, again, it was I think a sort of uh, if I can understand what they other sort of more intelligent people have written about it. It was a reaction to. Um, a hierarchical capitalist society and it was a way of slightly reclaiming um, very cheaply uh, the human experience from a world which most people don't have a you know a access to design so it was the idea of you know reclaiming a city streets by you know doing the things that you pipes might not be welcome to do by the those in charge so it's again I think for if I've read it properly I'm not sure I have. Uh, Psychogeography is more about looking at the world around you and seeing how you can play with it and how you can um, do something different. And so they often, um, bizarrely, I think actually if you look at how children interact with the world, that's um, a really interesting uh, new way they find, you know, they'll, um, they'll walk across the walls or, you know, balance on pipes or you know these sorts of things or they'll climb over um, spaces they shouldn't be or uh, you know if you go to a park and look at kids playing you know nine times out of ten they'll walk up the ladder of the slide and then slide down it but then there's always one who's going to walk up the slide and then sort of run down the stairs at the back you know it's that that finding a different way of interacting with the world which is just as fun if not more fun um, and, but turning a design and, and twisting it to shape your own interests, and uh, uh, there's um, actually well, uh, in G.K. Chesterton's book, *The Man Who Was Thursday*, um, he sort of touches upon the idea of sort of interacting with the world in a slightly different way. Uh, when he talks about um, the, the beginning of the book, I can't remember the name of the characters, but there's two chaps in there at a party, and I think one's a um, a businessman and one's a poet and the poet says god wouldn't it be lovely if um, uh, the the tube train wasn't on a fixed route and you could get on and you'd never know where you'd end up and uh, he says uh, why do all the clerks and navvies in the railway trains look so sad and tired so very sad and tired i'll tell you it's because they know their train they're going on is right and it because they know whatever place they have a ticket for is the place that they will reach it's because they are past Sloane Square and they know the next station must be Victoria and nothing but Victoria. Oh, their wild rapture, oh, their eyes like stars and their souls again in Eden if the next station, next station was inexplicably Baker Street. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's that idea that all of a sudden um, uh, you might suddenly be taken out of your usual route. It's... Um, in a slightly stranger, darker way, almost, you know, when you're trying to get home and, and the train suddenly stops at the, an odd station and the driver says, well, that's as far as we're going, you'll have to make your own way from here. All of a sudden, you've got to interact with the world in a very different way. And it might be a wonderful uh, thing, it might be absolutely dreadful. Um, but, uh, again, bizarrely, while I was doing my research here, I had the TV on in the background and the, the National Lottery advert came on. At the minute, their uh, sort of slogan is that if we all play a little, fun stuff happens. And I think that's quite an interesting concept that you can think about, you know, if you, um, the idea of psychogeography and 
thinking closely about how you feel about the world around you. Um, literally, the, the, the sort of built um, architectural world, certainly. And um, yeah, all of a sudden you can suddenly think, actually, you know, uh, what might I see? What new things might I experience? What new places might I go to if I just take one earlier left on my walk to work or I get off the bus stop, you know, two, um, two stops early and see what I can do. You might find a new shop, you might suddenly see a lovely new uh, park that you'd never seen before. Um, certainly in a city like London, it's a lot easier to do. Um, whereas, you know, in a smaller town or village, I think, you know, perhaps it's, uh, there's not quite so much to be discovered, but it's not until you actually stop and go and have a look uh, that you, you know, you'll never know. Um, but the interesting thing about psychogeography particularly is that it's, it's going to be something that which, uh, almost certainly us here in the UK, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, um, but over the last uh, year and a half with the on and off again lockdowns because of um, COVID, um, people were suddenly found, you know, their whole um, uh, timetables have been uh, changed a huge extent so where people weren't people weren't going out um, or perhaps you know they uh, stuck at home and all of a sudden you know the government says right you're allowed out for one hour a day to walk for exercise so all of a sudden you think god where can i go how can i um, walk about my town or my village or my city what can i see what can i do in that hour and um, it's all of a sudden we've all been, um, we've all become psychogeographers, which I think is really exciting, even if we didn't know it. And that all of us will have discovered a new walk, uh, found new and interesting things to look at or made new discoveries, you know, uh, you know a new river to, to walk along or a new path uh, going past a, you know, a goat farm or whatever it might be. I'm thinking particularly of what my parents have been doing, yeah. Um, and that, uh, yeah, suddenly this place that you thought you knew very well, you have to interact with it very differently. And that has hopefully, um, I think, for a lot of people, unlocked a lot of excitement about where they live, which perhaps they didn't know, uh, and found new interest in, in exploring their, their area. Um, it's the whole um, psychogeography, um, they would call them uh, derives, I think, D-E-R-I-V-E, -E, um, which is a way of exploring the world around you. It's a journey without reason, subconsciously allowing the architecture and geography uh, to direct your walk in the hope of having an entirely new, uh, unexpected, authentic experience. Um, again, the idea of uh, being consciously, unconsciously choosing your path, uh, I think is really interesting. And uh, it's, I think, the idea that um, in a lot of um, comic books, there's a lot of books about London particularly that focus on the idea of psychogeography and how it affects people. In Alan Moore's um, huge work about Jack the Ripper, From Hell, um, there's lots of ideas in there that he puts in, which he talks about in the appendix at the back, um, where he says, well, you know, if you have uh, a church that looks like a sort of satanic pagan temple, what is that going to make people think about what the church is? Um, and how will that affect people? You know, it does the design of a city make people mad? You know, does putting, uh, does building slums make people, you know, sort of 
lose that uh, drive or will to, to get out of it or, you know, the sort of labyrinth uh, side streets of London make, you know, people lost and stuck and, and lonely and frightened. Um, and the, the other way, you know, uh, if you walk into a well-designed library, it's going to make you feel calm and quiet or, a, you know, a, a peaceful church and you'll feel, you know, that emotion. Um, whether consciously or unconsciously, if you you know it, you might get it. If you're visiting a, any sort of um, temple or religious building, you'll feel a sort of peace and calm and quietness in there. Um, and if you walk into a well-designed hospital, hopefully that will make you feel um, well or secure or safe. But you know sometimes they often don't. And you know perhaps you know does walking into a hospital make you feel ill rather than well? Um, does walking into a school make you feel sort of intimidated rather than um, sort of ready to learn? And uh, again, there's that sort of, there's a magical thinking here which we can often tie into these sort of, those, those classic words, as above, so below. Um, you can extrapolate um, the, more feelings about the world, you know, if you walking down a, uh, a frightening street you know what is that telling you is that your body saying you know you need to be on the lookout here you know there could be um, danger lurking around the corner um, and you know does that have an effect on the people that live there or the people who visit there but um, again yeah Guy Dubord says, you know, you might notice a sudden change of ambience in a street within the space of a few metres. Uh, the evident division of a city into zones of distinct psychic atmospheres, the path of least resistance that is automatically followed on aimless strolls uh, in which have no relation to the physical contour of the terrain. Um, it's what we can do is we can turn a, a walk through a, a city or a town um, we can switch off our brains and we can, uh, I think, almost have a sort of um, a magical interaction with a place where your walk can become a magic spell uh, and it's to um, unlock uh, a sense of mystery, uh, a sense of interest, a sense of um, I don't know, power over uh, a place that you don't know. I, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't, I'm not quite sure if I'm getting over quite what I mean here. But anyway, I hope um, uh, perhaps in the next week, um, if you find the time, if, uh, if that's possible, um, perhaps you could go on your own psychogeographical, psychogeographical uh, walk um, through a place that you either know or perhaps don't know so well and uh, uh, you know, turn your headphones off and um, put your phone on silent and um, perhaps see if you can get a feeling of a sense of a place and see something different and find something new and um, yeah, work your own uh, magical spell and, uh, and, and see what you can discover. Um, so there we are, that's um, uh, my very poor explanation of psychogeography and what it means. Um, thank you very much for putting up with my ramblings once again. It's been very good to talk to you. Uh, I have, um, uh, obviously we've got a, a couple more chapters on uh, the great god Pan to get through and then we'll be going back to our sort of usual um, 
uh, style of episodes where we'll be looking at some um, interesting places around London and the, the secret history there. Um, again, the sort of psychogeographical jaunt through a strange and mysterious city. Uh, I've been looking a, a lot recently at the monument and uh, Christopher Wren, so that might be a, a possible idea. But um, I'm always very happy to uh, let my wanderings take me where they will, and so we never know what's going to come next. Uh, uh, anyway, if you'd like to get in touch, if you've got any questions or uh, comments, then uh, you can find me on Instagram at The Invisible London. Um, most professional podcasters always say, don't forget to like or rate the podcast or whatever app or um, sort of portal that you listen to. So uh, if you've got the time and you'd like to leave a rating, go ahead. Um, <laughs> if you think of ways I can improve it, then do let me know. Um, unfortunately, because I just don't know what I'm doing when it comes to uh, technology, I'm not sure I can improve <laughs> the sort of technology behind the podcast any better. But uh, the content, I'm always very happy to try <laughs> and get better. Um, anyway, it's been very good to talk to you again. I hope you have a, um, a lovely day and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Cheerio.